0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We're engaging with the words of Torah from Parshat team this morning. You'll recall that uh, last week we were in Parshat Re'eh, and uh, now we're going to get to setting up the system of government that was going to happen in the land of Israel when they cross the Jordan and settle there. Presumably, the kind of government, I mean, according to the narration, the kind of government that they had in the desert as a military campaign was not going to work, right, in the land where they were going to settle and actually build a society. Um, but when is this in reality written?
2: Much later. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bert. <laughs> Three eighty-six or something. I think you. Four hundred no. years. Much later. Years. So,
1: so they've been in the land for quite some time, right? This is a religious reform. Deuteronomy is a religious reform, and so we are getting now the description of what a government should be, what the what the ideal in the land of Israel should be. From the point of view of the Deuteronomist. And the, we have four categories of leadership uh, in the ancient Israelite system. So we have a balance of powers, if you will. So tell me what the four branches are. What kinds of government do we have? We're going to see right now that we're going to get judges. What else? Prophets. Prophets. So, Priests. Priests and Levites, right? So we're going to call it as they do in biblical scholarship clergy.
2: And the king. And the
1: king.
3: I'm impressed.
1: So these are the different branches of leadership in ancient Israel. You have judges. Tell me a little bit about why judges have been important in the history of Israel. Till now. Not now, but till now. Wars. Wars. Right? So you have a loose confederation of tribes. There comes a threat that's bigger than what you can handle. You gather together with other tribes to defend, let's say, the coast. And so you have a leader that arises who is wise, who is a military leader, and this person is the judge, right? So our, the book of judges, right, is all about this period, which is early in Israelites' whoa, um, early in Israelites' history. In Israel's history. So judges have been the leaders. So when we say judges, it's not like, oh, okay, somebody who's gonna go to law school, right, and sit on the bench. Um, judges were the the real leaders of of the people until the people ask for a king. a king so possibly it is that once again you you can't get the people united unless you have the symbol the person who has both the military capability and power right and other kinds of power to really unite the people Trump. so so let's i'm I'm doing all of this on purpose before we get to the text so who was the first we have we've already had the clergy we've had the the levites and the priests right since our discussion of the mishkan the tabernacle in the desert right um and who's the prophet that we're most familiar with so far in reading torah (laughs) moshe moses Moses would be very bummed to hear Elijah. Um, <laughs> Moses is our prophet, right? Moses is Hanavi. He is the prophet. I
0: Amy, mean, what happened to Caleb and Joshua? Do they play any role now
1: in this? They, they don't play a role in this system. Do they just disappear after? Well, we have the book of Joshua, right? He continues to be the military leader, yeah. but it's it's before the settlement of the land right so So this is for when they're settled and when they have a society okay so
0: is that a big timeline difference I mean do you think between
1: between
0: where they are now the settlement and when they came in the land in other words they just migrate to this and Caleb disappears sort of irrelevant
1: alright so remember Torah history and lived history so if you're talking Torah history you know, it's sometime after. If we're talking lived history, there was no invasion, right? It, it develops from within the Canaanite system. All right. So judges. So we have a judge who is the one who appoints the first king. So we have Samuel and Samuel appoints Saul. Saul. As the first king of Israel. How long does Saul reign? Two years. Saul is a military leader, right? And there are some theories that this is this is actually why the kingship develops. There is a big push. There's a very big threat from the Phoenicians, from the Sea Peoples. It threatens the coast so badly that they decide they have to become a, a monarchy, that it's just too big a national threat, that the judges aren't going to be able to you know, pull it off. A judge isn't going to pull it off. The, the confederation of tribes isn't going to be able to come together and really pull it off that they're going to have to have a king. That's one theory. Another theory is that they are moving from being semi-nomadic pastoralists to becoming agrarian. Right? If you're gonna have an inhospitable land, you've got steep hills, you have to steep them, right? You have to put or how do you say that word? S T E P P You terrace them. So you have to terrace the land, right? So there's a lot of work that goes into um, terracing and defending, right, what you've now terraced in order to feed a bunch of people if you're talking inland. So for
0: Rabbi, I think some people wanted a king because like everybody else I think
1: it's not usually why nations do things that are this big a change, is because everyone else is doing it. Um, the part of that that might be true is it seems to be effective for everybody else. The, the other kingdoms around Israel indeed had kings, um, and perhaps Israel sees that they are successful and secure. And so they decide. Well, that's the way we can be best successful and secure is also to have it, a king. It's
0: also a uniting. Uh, uh, except, I mean, you know, thousands of years later, we have a constitution, and because, and in fact, some people even talked about having a king in the very beginning when they were, you know, the, here. Uh, developing here, developing the constitution. But in general, you know, thousands of years, the way to make a country was to have a king.
1: Sure. Sure, and um, and this is a constitutional monarchy, right? This is a constitutional monarchy, and many people believe that Europe looked to this model. That that the king, because in the ancient Near East, where do the where does the law originate in the ancient Near East? Persia. Wh- who who gives the law in the ancient Near East? The king. The king or the. The king is in contact with the gods, but the king gives the laws. This is an exception. Ancient Israel is an exception to that, right? It is one of, it is the exception in the ancients. It reconstructed that idea. And in Israelite monarchy, the king is bound by the constitution. The king is bound by this set of rules and where does this set of rules come from in ancient Israel God. God not the king that is a new concept in the ancient world that it is the one God who gives the law and to whom did the one God give the law the people the people the people this is big do you understand how big this is If before, I'm the king, I'm in contact with the gods, I then adjudicate and I make the law, that's a very different role for king. (laughs) Then even, let's say, the gods make the laws and give them to me, Right? it's still exclusively through me. In Israel, in ancient Israel, it was a theophany before the entire people. They were all at Sinai. Everyone heard at Sinai, Anochi Adonai Elohecha. Right? this is radically different and what it does for the role of king is interesting because over and against the king is the prophet because the prophet presumably is hanging out with God so do you see the, you can imagine the tension between these two roles right
3: but at the time this is <clears throat> At the time, you're talking about 400 years later, right? So there is no prophet, and
1: the people are doubting now, so wouldn't they need something? We have lots 6%? of prophets. No, we have lots of prophets. Like, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm. No
2: worries. We have lots of them. Mm-hmm. So there's. Aren't they there to keep the king kind of honest? So. Kind of like the media today? So, <laughs> so this is where we're going to go eventually, <laughs> right? If this is a constitutional
1: monarchy, what, what's, who plays what role? So I think to some extent, Bert's right that, that that's how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That there's, there's a body that says, here are our values, mm-hmm. here are our supreme values, Is that what the most powerful elements of government are living into or not?
2: Speaking truth to power.
1: Speaking truth to power. So when David has Bathsheba's husband killed on the front line so he can take her for his own, it's the prophet, right, Natan, who comes and says, if a farmer had one sheep and you the king came and took, or a rich guy came and took that sheep, would that be fair? Well, of course not, David says, right? And the prophet Nathan says, well... (laughs)
3: Probably the only example we can still see of a king or a monarch being the head, at least figuratively, for unity is in Britain. They still look to the queen as the figure of unity, but they have the parliament underneath the two houses who are balancing and they also have the press to keep them in order. And it's ironic that now we look to Britain and we rebelled against that order, and now we have a president who wants to be king again. Without prophets, without press, without it. he wants to be a dictator, not a king.
1: So that's a very interesting place that we could wind up. Um, we are there. So let's, let's look at the text. Let's look
2: at uh, chapter 16, verse 18. You shall appoint magistrates and officials for your tribes in all the settlements that the Lord your God is giving you. And they shall govern the people with due justice. You shall not judge unfairly. You shall allow no partiality. You shall not take bribes, for bribes blind the eyes of the discerning and upset the plea of the just. Justice, justice shall you pursue that you may thrive and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not set up a sacred post, any kind of pole, beside the altar of the Lord your God that you may make, or erect a stone pillar. For such the Lord your God detests. Okay. Shoftim Bishotrim
1: sha'arecha. So you will appoint magistrates and officials for your tribes in all the settlements that Adonai your God is giving you, and they shall govern the people With due justice. Mishpat tzedek. Due justice is... Eh. Lukewarm at best. Mishpat. Judgment. Tzedek. Righteous. Mm -hmm. Just. So, I mean, it sounds a little bit redundant, but, you know, your your judgment shall be righteous.
2: Well, doesn't one speak to, like, the law and the other speaks more to values? No. Tzedek? No? No.
1: No, no such distinction mm. at all. No, at all. Th- there is no difference. The law is just, right? The law mm. is expressive of those values. And I mean, do you just one mean a noun like the law, mm. and one means the kind of law? I, well, mean, I guess in, that's in, sort of in what English, it says.
2: In English, there's compassion and there's strict mm. justice, mm. and they kind of. I heard Al say.
3: Franken say that. Your politics
1: reflect your morals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and that's what Torah feels, mm-hmm. for sure. So mishpat zedek, your, your rulings shall be just and righteous rulings. You shall not judge unfairly. You shall show no partiality. You shall take no bribe. Probably this does not mean bribes. Mm. Probably this means fees. Right? Um Because obviously bribes, bribes is a little too obvious, right? It's like, duh, right? You know, bribes are going to blind the eye. But you could just say we're charging an administrative fee to hear your case, Maura Tenzer. But George Walken doesn't have the fee, right? So Maura's case will be heard, and you'll get quicker justice. And probably, right, what Tara is suggesting is that will influence also the judge that you, you know, had the money to pay to to bring a, a case to court. What did
3: the courtsters call it when they went around collecting from protection money? Yeah. <laughs> that was
1: the fee. So th- this would be a fee to, he- to have the 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 Hebrew shochad means literally it refers to a gift for which something is expected in return.
0: Was the king then only appointed because of the military need?
1: We're we're going to we're going to get to the king. We're gonna, we're at the judges right now. So the, the judge, judging as its own thing was probably, this is a new, somewhat new idea, right? The, as we talked about, the judge, judging had not been separate from other aspects of leadership before. Now we're getting a judi- a judiciary that is really about adjudicating cases rather than Taking The judge is not going to take on other aspects of leadership. So it's an organized
3: balance of government, of everybody having a role for balance. That is what
1: we're looking at. That is what we're looking at. But didn't the judges sort of arise out of a popular?
0: They had to have a certain status within the community. They weren't elected or nominated or anything of that sort. It was almost as if they were special (coughs) prophets. They were recognized as important... um, Uh, as important leaders almost um, organically from the
1: uh, community. So it's, yes. So my notes say it is possible that when a village chief was chosen from among the leading elders, he became the judge. And so weren't they
3: leaders of the tribes, leaders of the tribe.
1: So within the tribes, there would have been leadership, right? But there was also leading elders, right? And from the leading elders comes uh, the judge just as a sheikh is chosen in traditional Arab society so it would have been understood that this is your guy is that what a
3: sheikh
1: is a judge is that what sure it means? no it means a lot more than that but think avraham uh-huh. avraham was a sheikh mm-hmm. so you have wealth you control what's happening to everybody who's in your it's a pinnacle position, then. Yes, and then that means, by definition, you have the right. If there's a dispute among two of those people, you have the right to say what's going to happen. They come to you as the sheikh to, to render judgment.
0: But Samuel was more than just somebody who judged. Samuel was considered very righteous, a very. Uh, I mean, he had a lot of popular support for his. Um,
1: for absolutely, absolutely absolutely which is how Saul gets his authority right okay what authority he had uh, all right, where are we 20 the very famous yes justice justice shall you pursue in order that you live not just thrive, right? That you should live and then thrive in this land that God is giving to you. Why tzedek tzedek? You know this is an invitation for the rabbis. Come on.
3: Well, it's repeated to give real emphasis.
1: To okay, them. emphasis. What else? Any guesses? Come on, you know how the rabbis think by What's now. What's
3: the difference between hazak and tzedek? Oh, hazak.
1: hazak means strong. Okay. Tzedek means just. Okay very more than emphasis what
0: go out of your way to do the right thing
1: alright so go out of your way not just tzedek when it's comfortable but tzedek when you have to work really hard to achieve it. it
2: the note here says justice and only justice
1: justice and only justice shall you pursue right the rabbis they love this tzedek tzedek God wouldn't be redundant God forbid right so Tzedek not only the me the ends but the means must be just
3: So that's the statement that ends do not justify the means
1: Correct For the rabbis tzedek tzedek both the the, the means for tzedek and the ends must be tzedek another one for them is it's tzedek for me but tzedek for
2: Everybody.
1: everyone as well that i need to protect you know like my justice in my own sense but also justice for the community right because sometimes those are intention
2: can you talk about the word tirdolf it's, it's translated in english as pursuit doesn't it have a sense of running after that's what pursuit is right well, so if you pursue prey it's exactly the same right, way. But pursue also has a much more calm meaning in English, like you shall do this. It's not like actively. So this is like pursuing prey, like running after. This is like you're
1: running after something that's running from you, and so you don't pursue that cab. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so but it's, it's a, a very, very it's a in very, this context, very active, very active, absolutely, and. And it would have been evocative of hunting, Mm -hmm. right? For the people reading this text, it would have absolutely been evocative of hunting, um, that you're chasing after something that's running really fast from you.
2: Um, That's different from just you should do it.
1: Correct, correct. So we get two times tir-dov, famously in the Bible. We get this one, tzedek, tzedek, tir-dov, and we get that Aharon was... Ohev oh Shalom, the road fehu, and chased after it. This this same word. So when we were in Israel, and we heard from Tal Becker, this wonderful scholar. That those of you who did Hartman with me saw on the um, on the discussion part of the film. He, often, he talked to us, and he said, you know, we were talking to him about the, the matzav. That's right? so what you talk about in Israel, the situation. <laughs> And if you read my article in the Jewish Journal, he's the one who said the Torah talks about both justice and peace as things that we rodef after, not things we achieve. And he said that's a very important Jewish mindset, that it is hubris to think we will achieve justice because right? that says, I, I know what justice is, I understand justice, I will make it happen. That it is a much more humble thing to say, like, I, I will stay in pursuit of justice and I will stay in pursuit of peace. That it's not, Tal Becker right now is, is talking very much that he's troubled and very worried by the zero-sum game way of thinking about things in the Middle East. That for me to win, you have to lose, for you to win, I have to lose. And that's very much the mindset when people, when Israelis and Palestinians come to the table. He's been part of the negotiations from the beginning. He's hes very high up in the negotiations, the ones that have happened. They Even haven't now. happened in a while.
3: Even now, um, he's still high up?
1: Yes. Yes. If there were negotiations tomorrow, he would be called in. Or certainly consulted. I mean, he, he's the guy. So... Um, he was saying he's very troubled by zero-sum game thinking and that this is what stops so much of the negotiations, is if it's perceived of as a win for you, it must mean somehow that that's a loss for me. So when you want something to go through, you protest. No way. Israel will never settle for that. Not going to happen ever, ever, ever. Then it might happen because it looks like right, it's a loss and
3: a boss stated on the radio yesterday if you continue with settlements there is no peace.
1: Period. That's so the game too. So what was important for me to hear from Dr. Becker is we too often tend to think in zero sum game terms and or as Americans in achievement terms. When will peace be achieved? Right? When will justice be achieved? And and he says it's just not that's just not how they think. The, 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 the way to think about this is the way Torah talks about it, which is to pursue it actively, very vociferously, all the days of your life. And that's what the society should be concerned with, is pursuing justice and pursuing peace, that, that it's not going to be an absolute... State and if we can if we can go there and, and live from that place then there's always hope because there can be more peace or less peace and I can always work for there being more peace but if the thing is going to be there's going to be peace or not it it leaves us in a really hopeless situation and it doesn't move anything forward at all so I'm learning from him and I'm going to be very disciplined about every time i go there to challenge that thinking and to say more peace or less peace which will this particular thing help create
3: even though it's peaceful you still have to work for it because you have to keep it going you have to it's always work for it. it's not like okay now i can settle back and It's peaceful and I don't have to do anything. That's
1: absolutely right. That's absolutely true. That it stays active. Even should we achieve halibut, it should only Mm -hmm. come in our day. Even if peace between the Israelis and Palestinians should be achieved. It's still something that has to be very carefully tended and worked for. Because otherwise we, we know what happens, right? It easily comes apart. But and, and justice as well right? that we we have to continually work for it in in so many ways even if we think we have a just society which <laughs> we don't um, right? that, that that's something that has to be worked for really hard it's an excellent excellent point
0: but peace means giving up something in this situation
1: in every situation
0: in every situation but just talking about this situation and so you don't get the feeling at least from what you read here that the government is pursuing peace is running after because they're not willing to give up so many they're not willing to give up anything Uh, it sounds as if and
1: so it's not really really being followed so that's part of the question that that we asked him is so what does it mean to pursue peace when there's no active You know, conversation about it, and he said, "There's lots of ways that people are doing that that have nothing to do with the government because the governments aren't ready. There's no leadership on either side ready to come to the table to figure out what would we be willing to give up. I mean, everybody says what they're willing to give up. Everybody. So we went to the main with the Palestinians we, with with Arakat. The highest Palestinian negotiator there is. You know, and he said it's very clear. Here's here's what we'll give up if, if Israel will give right So everyone says they're clear about what they'll give up. But, so, but there's no leadership on either side to get to that place. And so what he's saying is that there are people who are actively pursuing things on the ground, relationships on the ground, things on the ground that when there are governments ready to come to get leadership on either side to come together to make some of these agreements happen, there will be a a big network under them to support those efforts, because it's going to take continuing efforts to make sure the peace deal doesn't fall apart. And that if there are good relations, and if there's you know back and forth, and and Israelis and Arab kids learning together and learning each other's language, and things like that happening, raising the poverty level for the Arab community, educating women in the Arab community. If that if that continues, then there's a stronger Let's Network in place to support that peace that gets agreed to. Isn't that how justice
0: is stitched into you know the two things you're after, peace and justice? Justice is stitched into that.
1: I, I would say for sure. for sure, for sure, Margo.
2: Thinking that um, might a better word than pursue, which which leaves winners and losers. the uh, earn. Is there a word for earn? in the Hebrew language earn, I'm, it. Earn, I'm just thinking and I'm kind of yeah, thinking but yeah,
1: earn <laughs> earn suggests it's going to be given by someone else I'll earn it but someone else is going to give it to me pursue means you have to run after it and go get it
2: it is, it is after all the journey that's important that gets you to wherever you want to go
1: Spoken like a Jew. Spoken like a Jew, Linda Scheibel. Another example that perfection is an enemy of the good,
0: and I know what perfection is for the uh, Hamas, which is the destruction of Israel. I don't know what perfection is for Israel. So, but when you the perfection itself prevents the good for the negotiations for Hamas.
1: So if you set something here and say I'm not going to budge from here because yeah, it has to be the perfect deal, yep. right? Then of course there's no there's no room to negotiate, All right? Absolutely.
0: Grandma, it, it, uh, the commentary here adds another explanation for the repetition of the word justice. Uh, I'll read this. This verse expresses a recurrent theme in Deuteronomy that the failure to follow God's instructions.
1: Will result in the loss of the promised land. Now that's pretty serious. That is very serious. Right? The consequences are very serious. Right? And that's that's hinted at in Lama'an right? In order that you shall live and you shall inherit the the land that God is giving you. Meaning you're not gonna do that if you don't pursue justice. Right? That that's the, the Consequences are you won't live and inherit the land. You'll, what happens? What happens if you don't obey God's law and you're in the land? What happens? Spits you out. You get conquered.
0: Doesn't this sort of remind you of
1: Rabbi Tarpon's
0: statement about you're not required to complete the task, but neither are you permitted to desist.
1: It's very Jewish. Yep. You, you can't. You can't say, well, since I can't complete it, then. There's nothing I can do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's very Jewish. But
3: also the promised land,
1: again, for me, the promised land is that internal land. Ah, well, that is a whole nother conversation. Um, Right? And so many of our spiritual scholars understand. So if the promised land is a spiritual place that one is trying to get to, what are the judges sitting at the gates? conscience so so the judge is the one who discerns is this reality is this real or is it my fear my projection my desire my whatever right um is this about my ego or is this or is this real right the the judge discerns is this what i should do right or is this not or should i not do this and the Actually, the Sefer Yetzirah talks about that there are seven gates. So, you know, the judges sit in the gates of the town. The judges sit in the gates, and that's where they adjudicate. And the Sefer Yetzirah says that there are seven gates in the body two eyes, two ears, the mouth, and the two nostrils. Why are nostrils important? What happens with. When God's nostrils flare, what happens? He gets mad. Very bad things happen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when God's nostrils flare. God's nostrils flaring is anger, mm-hmm. right? So when we say, I have the high holidays, and we say, God is erech mm-hmm. God is long of nose, why, why is that a good quality?
3: Because
1: it's not, not open. <laughs> God's not, not angry. And God has away. lots of reason to be angry, right? So God being long of nose, the nostrils are not flaring, even though there's plenty of reason right, for that. So you'll read in your machzor, you'll see. You're going to mm-hmm. look. You're going to look at High Holidays, and you're going to be like, oh, do we have that in Torah study? It's going to say slow to anger in your translation, mm-hmm. in right? But it's long of nostril. All right. so So there's seven <laughs> gates. Uh, in the body and over these gates we are to set according to the Sefer Yetzirah magistrates and officials mm-hmm. Shoftim vishotrim. so that we will judge ourselves at all times making sure that they will not commit any sin if these places are kept whole then it is possible always to remain holy and pure so these judges we are to appoint over the gates of the body over what we see what, what we look at what we hear. listen to right um and certainly dealing with our uh anger and our um, speech what we
3: Chinese have a wonderful say. way of saying that too hear no evil see no mm-hmm. evil speak no evil
1: and uh and the Zohar picks it up also and says that there are gates and imaginings of the mind and so putting judges and officers at the portals of the mind is about discerning the nature of thought discerning the nature of what we think because thoughts just come right those of us who are going to sit in meditation in a little while right thoughts just come that's what they do judgments (laughs) i'm afraid i'm jealous i'm whatever like those things come up and appointing judges a judge at the gate of the mind right is saying okay so let me let me evaluate what that thought is not just react to that thought discernment right that the judge is known for discernment and carefully thinking about things and what's and what's actually happening so certainly the um the spiritual tradition absolutely understands all of this as metaphor And if that's true, you get to hold Ms. Gorngood. you get to hold then what are the others? Okay? Because absolutely they use this system. Throughout Kabbalah, throughout Jewish um, Musar teaching, Jewish, um, what's Musar in English? Ethics.
2: ethical.
1: Ethical, moral, behavior, cultivation, right? They have to turn to Torah, right? It's all here. It's all here in Torah, of course. God gave it all to us, right? So So, this remains the system. And so, if we're talking the promised land as an internal state of being, of holiness and purity and goodness and peace, then we're talking about the judges. Next, we're going to go, right, to the king. So, you be thinking about that one. And I'll give you a copy of Rabbi Sheffield Gold's teaching, where she walks through all four of them, don't worry. So, you'll have it before you leave. All right. You shall not set up a sacred post at verse 21. What is the Hebrew? lo where's Rita Cohen uh, Rita Ephros when I need her Asherah I know Rita's not here for me to pick on her lo Asherah Asherah what's Asherah to Asherah
2: to another god (laughs) right
1: Asherah the goddess for the Canaanite people Mm -hmm. she was the consort of the god of the chief god she is also Astarte. She has different names uh, based upon where where she's worshipped in the ancient Near East. So Asherah, Astarte, Ishtar, Isis, these are all right the female um consort, you know, the partner to the male god. Um, we know that Asherah continued to be worshipped in Israel. There was never a time, I know this is going to depress Mortenzer really badly. (laughs) There was never a time in ancient Israel where Israel was not worshiping Baal and Asherah. We have never found archaeological evidence ever of any period that did not contain evidence of Asherah and, right. So, so that's why the prophets are always yelling and screaming about it is because the people just, couldn't let it go. In Kuntilat Adrud in southern, I think it's northern Egypt, there is a um, there is a inscription on a cave, it's a painting on a cave wall that is says to Yahweh, to Yudhe Vavhe and his Asherah. <laughs> so what it tells you is that there was syncretistic worship, that many in many places Yudhe Vavhe had a consort. Of course, you have to have a consort if you are the cod, right? How, right? You <laughs> just have to. So, in lots of places, they ne- in lots of places they never gave up Asherah. So here we see in Deuteronomy the religious reform: do not set up an Asherah anywhere. It is abhorrent to Yehovah. Not only is it not his partner, mm. right? It's abhorrent is to Yehovah. Is
0: this true even in the Davidic era and the Solomon? It, it, it continued throughout.
1: Oh, Solomon had you know, other images in the temple of other gods. It was public because of his wives.
0: Is this is this because as you said before a lot of the, what became Israelites were Canaanites who basically uh, signed on to uh, the uh, Israelites.
1: And, and early Israel never got rid of the Impulse to worship the creatress, right? She, the goddess, precedes Yudhebhe by a long time, right? The creatrix is first. Patriarchy comes later, and needing the one god to be male. So there are folks who never gave up their attachment to the idea of the feminine divine. They just like they were like wait what the world could come into being without a mother goddess to birth it how could that possibly be, right and or or just forget even logic just all, all of the, you know the the need to relate to the feminine divine and so it stays it, it doesn't go away and so they so they may not have Asherah as a Idol, God forbid, that would be pretty obvious. Um, but a sign, a symbol of the goddess was always, if you had a, a grove of trees and there was a single tree, that was a sacred tree. So that was a tree sacred to the goddess. And it was often a, a cult site, right? It was one tree that kind of was apart. That was a sacred tree to the goddess. That is called an ashera in lots of places. And notice where is Avraham? right, when some pretty important stuff goes down for Avraham, he's at a tree that everybody knows about,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right, like, so you can hear earlier pagan um, resonances in a lot of these early Genesis mm-hmm. narratives, it's also have- Africa too, but- by the Terebinth of Mamre, right, it was a very mm-hmm. specific tree that he didn't have to say, which is over by the park, mm-hmm. by the high school, mm-hmm. right, it was like, the terebinth of Mamre right? like everyone knew what that was it was a sacred tree don't True. we still
3: have trailings of this feminine goddess uh, in our thinking as well? We, mother
1: earth. well we
3: well mother earth yes but well, we also, Shekhinah?
1: Shekhinah, Shekhinah is the most obvious right is the most that's the rabbinic mm-hmm. um, the, soul, the soul for what was important for the rabbis is that that is an aspect of God God contains both masculine and feminine that was very important for the rabbi. So shechina is not separate or different from yud hevavhe. But if we make love on Shabbos, mm-hmm. we bring together, right, the kadosh baruch the, the holy blessed one, with the shechina, and cause a union in the high places, right? So there's there's residences certainly of the duality of masculine and feminine even within the tradition.
0: Oh, I, I get the point <clears throat> The, the, the key point uh, about avoiding idols and uh, all the other pres- fundamental prescriptions we have is mm-hmm. not to anthropomorphize to answer, you know, God, basically because in which case God is neither masculine nor feminine
3: so, and be mm-hmm.
0: real, uh, I understand that priesthood whatever, went in a patriarchal direction, but I thought sort of the fundamental rule was not human-like. It it's
1: is. a fundamental rule. Mm-hmm. Fundamental That's rule. it's one of the concerns. That's not the only concern. Okay. Asherah is another concern. Mm-hmm. That's a big concern that you that this non this non anthropomorphic spirit energy does not have a female concert. Mm-hmm. Right. So part of it is not anthropomorphizing. The other is there's not a feminine spirit, right? That co you know that has anything to do with that. So part of it's about the unity of that deity. Part of it is about not anthropomorphizing. Part of it is it's not Baal. <laughs> it's the same God. It's just not Baal, right? So the same kind of God. If you look early in our text, it's very anthropomorphic. God is walking around the garden <laughs> in the in the afternoon. God is Ishmael Chama, right? A man of war. Like it. There's a lot of anthropomorphizing that's still there, and certainly there's a big push against it. But that's that's not the it's, I wouldn't say it's even the biggest concern um,
0: so you think the biggest concern really was dealing with Ka'al and, and Hashirah, Yeah, really?
1: polytheism yeah and Canaanite attachments to their gods it, it's kind of to me it's kind of like the Christmas tree like what do we really care that people have they cut down a tree and they put it in their living room in December like what do we really care we don't we don't really care. Okay, you have a tree and you put a bunch of scrap on it. Fine. Like what's the big deal? We get all worked up about do they have a tree in their house, you know, because it's a symbol of attachment to another tradition, even if it's a Hanukkah bush. It makes us really nervous. Why? And it makes me nervous. I'm not going to lie. It makes me it makes me Hanukkah bush. I'm just like just do a Christmas tree. Like Hanukkah bush really? Mm-hmm. Um but and, and I don't mean to be judgmental. I'm just saying, like, it, it's my reaction. But I'm very clear: my reaction is about c- Christmas and Jesus and Christ and the way it's been an imperial religion and has persecuted the Jewish people. And right, like the it goes it's this crazy list that goes all the way back that has nothing to do with c- the tree. And and, and, and like that's racist. what we're that's and, and the and I think it's the attachments to. Right, the Christmas tree is about the attachments to that. It's not about what the people in that house are actually doing. Like I know the people in that house are not practicing, taking the Eucharist. Right, it, it, that's not my reaction. My reaction is to the associations of attachment, and that's what this is. Or a statue of Robert E. Lee. The, exactly right, that we talked about last week. Right, so this is the the po- so So when you read English, I just want you, as always, to read. We read. Don't put up a pole. Okay, whatever. Right? Like this is this is this is deep stuff here. This is like really. This was the important stuff. Asherah. Don't put up. Don't put a tree in the living room in December. Is what this is saying. <laughs> you even if you think of it as a Hanukkah bush, you can't do it. Right? It's too risky. It it, it it's just too close to. Um, to the original. So even if they were just putting up a pole, because that's what you're supposed to do, because that's what our grandparents did, yes. right? The Deuteronomist is saying, even if you don't mean it to be an Asherah, you can't do it. It's too close. Right? The slippery slope from a pole to the goddess. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's no
3: relationship between Asherah and Lashon Hara.
1: No. No. <laughs> uh, they sound so much no, alike. Yes. Yeah. No. I'm sorry, what is Lashon the evil, evil tongue, evil. gossip. The evil um, so, but they right because if you're only dealing with Hebrew how it sounds, yeah. there's lots that's confusing,
3: I've
1: right? Heard if that you today. if if you if you if you know Hebrew visually, mm. there's no connection, yeah. mm-hmm. right? They they're just completely
3: like Musar and Musa. I mean, they sound so much mm-hmm. alike, and they Nikki told me they're very different.
1: Correct. But in English to see. And the C mm-hmm. right? You know, and somebody who's just same dealing same with language. English, you know, oh, from a from an oral perspective, it's like, wait, what? Do so those things have to something to do with it? Hmm? We need to learn Hebrew. <laughs> 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 yeah. Where's Take any of that and bring it to the Son of God. Take any of what? Of oh, the the female, male portion, whatever it is. How about the Virgin Mary? That's what I'm asking. Virgin Mary. Of course, of course, there has to be the goddess. Of course, there has to be the feminine divine. Absolutely, but you know, Catholicism had the same problem as Israelite religion, which is well, it has to be understood that it's not God that's separate from God. It has to be right within God. So they make a trinity. So, well, the trinity is different from Mary, yep, right. right? And Mary's not exactly divine, but but certainly, the, you see, lots of places that had the goddess that now have the same rites and rituals that they used to lift the statue of the goddess, they now lift a statue of the Virgin Mary, right? So, so that their pagan connection to the feminine divine gets transferred onto Mary. Okay, that's where Jesus comes in. They, they, they make this whole thing. <laughs> well, Jesus is another story. Um, but, but the tree, that tree in December, right from here, right from pagans, Absolutely, it it was the Asherah, and you you did a fest. You you did a festival with the pole, with the tree, Mm -hmm. right? So at solstice, and so absolutely that is right out. That that's Christians reconstructing their pagan beloved rites and rituals and bringing them in and reconstructing them into being now symbols of their Christian faith.
2: Very clever.
3: (laughs)
1: <laughs> look, look, we're we're about to crown God as king, right? In a few, oh, God help me, in a th- in a month, um, we're about to crown God as king, right? Where do we get that idea? Hmm? Where did that idea come from? Crowning God as king in the fall? Pagan. <laughs> it's
3: <gotta be> pagan.
1: <laughs> yeah. Babylonia.
3: Huh.
1: Mesopotamia. They crowned their God as king in the fall. So what does Israel do? They've been in exile in Babylonia. They come back from exile. What are they going to do? They are going to now crown the king in the fall. But they reconstruct that pagan ritual. That's what every human civilization does, right? We're no different. You take those pagan rituals, you reconstruct them. It is now a symbol of your Jewish faith. What does that reconstruction look like? We're not crowning an earthly king, God forbid, because the ruling force in our lives, of course, is God as Melech HaOlam, king of the universe. And so we go through this huge rite and ritual to... To make that happen in the fall, because it ain't anywhere in here. <clears throat> what does it say in here is going to happen? Yes, but on but on this <laughs> day that we're going to crown God as King, what happens according to this? <laughs> 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 I'd like a what few I mean, guesses. Right, <laughs> <word>? job security. <laughs> right. Job yeah, job security. <laughs> That's exactly right. Young. Yom Truah. Oh, we'll sound the horn. You will sound the shofar. That's it. <laughs> okay. That's all. You will sound the shofar. And then 10 days later, you're going to have this big hoopla mm-hmm. around atonement mm-hmm. and forgiveness. But the the first day is is the sounding of the horn to let you know we're starting the month where the big day comes. Mm-hmm. That's it. Everything else... Is from Babylonia. Everything else is a reconstruction of of another religion. Mm-hmm. And look, it works. <laughs> like, and I'm not knocking it. Like I, I love that we can take something and reconstruct it and and make it speak to us right in a completely different context. That's what makes me trustful that we can take this and reconstruct it for our time and continue to make it mm-hmm. right. So how do Orthodox deal
3: with this if they don't look at it as you know, as a, a story and how we've pulled in all these other things. This is supposed to come from God, and God wrote it. Well,
1: right. no, they comment. They know it comes from the rabbis. Right. They know the rabbis developed these rituals after the temple was destroyed, right? You, cr- we created rabbinic Judaism. The ultra orthodox even won't argue that the rabbis didn't create rabbinic Judaism. <laughs> but we created the prayer book. We, we, they know the rabbis wrote those prayers, right? There's no argument about that. So, the, are they going to say it came from Babylonia? No, mm-hmm. but crowning God as king—that's a lovely thing to do. Why not? Let's write beautiful, like liturgy around that.
0: Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, wait! I have a hand over here. The
3: Rebbe-
1: mm-hmm. came to our house yeah.
3: And as he was leaving, he said, "I'm just going to blow the shofar because it's the beginning mm-hmm. days, prior thirty days prior to Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur." So I'm blowing it to remind you mm-hmm. to start preparing. That is the reason for doing it.
1: To start preparing you to think mm-hmm. of your sin yeah. etc. Yeah. And that's how they rationalize it. They're not rationalizing anything. They blow Shofar and Elul in order to say Rosh Hashanah is coming, that they're not rationalizing anything. Rosh Hashanah is the sounding of the shofar, and so and so he, he did rationalize by saying the reason we do it. Mm-hmm. That is the reason we do it. Because we're thinking of our sins and mm-hmm. that is the reason we do it. Yeah. it's
3: not a rationalization. Yeah. Oh, you don't think it's
1: rational. No, that's the reconstruction. Mm-hmm. The original blowing of shofar, right? You know, who, who knows what the original blowing of shofar is? It's already in Torah. That's not Babylonian. That's in Torah. What the original was, we can debate forever. It doesn't tell us in the Torah, mm-hmm. right? For us, the Reconstruction, has is, is that that's the call to tshuva, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the meaning of it for us.
0: The king is coming with the horns. Mm-hmm. You know, when kings move around, people move out
1: and front. Right, but why it? do that on the first of Tishrei? Because God's coming on Yom Kippur? Okay, mm-hmm. that works. You know, whatever the original mm-hmm. meaning, of course, it. but it was also an alarm, Right, the shofar was also how you called people together. If God forbid there was an emergency mm. and you needed everybody to act, you blew the shofar. And so, so some people say, well, that's the real meaning. It wakes us up to say Yom Kippur's is coming. We better pay attention. Um, or and the king is coming. And what you know, you can read whatever you want. It doesn't tell us. We we kind of have to get there mm. ourselves. All right, I want to read a little bit about the king because um, mm. I think it's a timely piece.
0: <sighs> I just wanted to say that I find, find it ironic. Uh, about the fluidity of all the religion that goes through the Canaanites become Israelites. We were in Babylonia. We take Babylonian tradition into our sort of thing. So there's an immense amount of fluidity that we take as gospel, pardon the term. We take it as you know the word, but there is an immense amount of fluidity.
1: And when we can recognize that. We have lots to talk about with other traditions who have done exactly the same thing. As long as we say, we get it, we did it, everybody does it, that's how religion works, that's how peoples work, that's how societies and cultures work, then we have lots to talk about with lots of different folks going, oh, that's cool, so y'all took a pole, and you made it a tree, and Mm -hmm. we took this, and we made it a race, right? Cool. It's called evolving. It's called evolving religious civilizations. All right, so let's go to, which is always a mouthful, Uh, let's go to 14, 14. What 14?
2: 1714? Uh, 1714. If after you have entered the land that the Lord your God has assigned to you, and taken possession of it, and settled in it, and you, you decide, I will set a king over me, as do all the nations about me, you shall be free to set a king over yourself, one chosen by the Lord your God. Be sure to set as king over yourself one of your own people. You must not set a foreigner over you, one who is not your kinsman. Moreover, he shall not keep any horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses, since the Lord has warned you, you must not go back that way again. And he shall not have many wives, lest his heart go astray, nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. Ha! (laughs) So... Wait. It doesn't say he couldn't have had it before. Go on. on. When he is seated on his royal throne, he shall have a copy of this teaching written for him on a scroll by the Levitical priests. Let it remain with him and let him read it, uh, read in it, all his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, to observe faithfully every word of this teaching as well as these laws. Thus he will not act haughtily toward his fellows or deviate from the instruction to the right or to the left, to the end that he and his descendants may reign long in the midst of Israel. So at verse
1: uh, 18, um, I, m- m- the commentaries that I've always heard argue with this translation. This is the JPS mm-hmm. translation. Um, and it, it, at verse 18 says, Ve-aha, ve'haya." And it shall be that when he sits on his throne, probably meaning as soon as he sits on as soon as he takes the throne, the chatavlo et Mishneh Hatorah. He shall write for himself Torah from before the priest, meaning he will take an authorized copy, the ones that are before the priest, and the chatavlo, and he shall write for himself. You you could argue Vikhatavla means he shall have it written for him. But V'chatav is pretty much the the simple form and, and that's where most people go is that he's commanded to write a Torah scroll. So that I mean that's a pretty intense like <laughs> undertaking. And and actually it's probably not there's an argument about whether or not it's a Torah scroll. Because Mishnah HaTorah Hazot, this teaching Probably means this teaching, right, about the king,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? You know these these parts of Deuteronomy. But of course, is that going to satisfy the rabbis? No. <laughs> For the rabbis, what is the a king got to write? An entire sefer Torah, <laughs> right? Um, but but the the teaching, is, I mean, the idea is the same that he is to be engaged. The king is to be engaged with the constitution all the time to remember. That it's this that guides him, and this is the authority, because for us, you know, God is the authority, and the values and ethics that flow out of that, the moral behavior that flows out of that, that is what the king should be paying attention to all the time, because the temptation, right, it's lest he become haughty. Could you imagine that could happen? That he he would act haughtily towards his fellow, right? Or deviate from ethical behavior, right? So when that
3: gold star father, Mister Khan, said, "I've got a copy of the Constitution," he should have said, "And
1: you write it <laughs> and and keep it with you, right?" Um, and and read it and study it. Um, and so we going back to this whole business of not keeping. Uh, not having a lot of wives, not having a lot of horses, not having a lot of wealth, right? All of these things are things that can corrupt a king. Because the king is in a position to be very tempted by corruption. So what happens if you're already wealthy? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but I think it is a very important teaching for our time about what a king, the, the monarch, what that's supposed to mean and the behavior that's expected from the king, um, and what that's supposed to look like, and 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 this is not just for our time, but but in its own time, like that, this was this was something in the ancient areas that the king was not all powerful, mm-hmm. right? The king was subject to God's law, and who was that law given to? Everybody. Everybody. It was given to everybody, so everybody knew the laws by which the king was supposed to be behaving everybody knew right what the teaching was about how it was that you're an ethical and moral and good respectable person who was a tzaddik right a righteous person and uh and that's the standard to which the king was held
2: and it was read in public
1: that this it's was no read law, in public right. for sure and so you know people definitely had had access to this so i've given you uh rabbi jonathan Sachs. By the way, just quickly, I know we have to go. Um, Saul reigned two years. Then who came?
2: David.
1: Right? He reigned a long time. Then who came?
2: Saul. Good.
1: So Saul David unites the monarchy. David pulls everybody together. He makes it a nation state. Right? All that grooviness. He rules fine, good, whatever. He makes his uh, capital where? Jerusalem. 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 He conquers the Jebusites and takes a right, non-tribal place to uh, become his capital. So there's no attachment to that. It was the Jebusites still. Solomon becomes king. And what does Solomon immediately begin doing in order to make sure that he is recognized and Israel is recognized as wealthy and powerful? He starts building. Starts major building projects, a palace and a temple adjacent to the palace. That's what you do when you're the king. You build yourself a palace, and then you build yourself a temple near that palace to the big, the big guy, whoever it is. Baal, you know, whoever it is, Ra, right? Um, and that was a huge building project, which meant taxation of the people. Right? Solomon imports a bunch of stuff. He a lot of horses. Right, we know about Solomon's stables, right? A lot of horses. How many wives did he have? A thousand. A thousand wives? Oh.
2: I, think it was, How keep track.
1: I think it was 700 wives and 300 concubines, but, you know, not to, the details are not so important. So, so Solomon uh, taxes the people for all of these building projects, has a lot of horses, has a ton of wives, and what winds up happening? Right. After him, it's a divided monarchy. What happened to the of So, the of the so that's, that is a big, and then there's a big fight after Solomon about who's going to inherit the throne. That's why they split. Because the prophet, right, you've got prophets and other folks saying, uh uh-uh, uh, we want this one, and other folks saying, uh, we want this one, and it becomes a disaster. But the point being, Torah does, Torah doesn't seem to be wrong about the things that will corrupt. Corrupt. A king and weaken a monarchy and weaken the people and weaken their support. The king was supposed to bring everybody together so that it's a mutual right. So it's a I don't know what I'm saying. So it, it, it unites everybody so that the the mission can go forward and, and you're going to succeed. But but if you deviate from that, Torah says it's bad. And here we have exactly what happened in early Israel. We keep we need to keep reminding ourselves the United monarchy of Israel and Judea lasted for. A total of 100 years. 100 years. Um, So it's very clear that Torah is dealing with reality. So I'm giving you, um, you have Mindfulness and Justice, which I think is a beautiful piece by Rabbi Yael Shai that uh, I very much encourage you to look at and to read about how we go about tzedek, how we go about... Uh, justice. I know we don't have time um, to walk through it. Um, <coughs> and uh, looking at this uh, piece by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, just go to your second page, and I'll just skip to this. You can read, of course, the whole thing at home.
3: Yeah.
1: Working off Rabbi Yochanan, who says, wherever you find the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be God, there you find God's humility. Right. So for the rabbis, right, it's about Humility is is divine, and so he says... um, In the context of the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, there's a story worth telling. It happened in St. James Palace on 27 January 2005, the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Punctuality, said Louis XVIII of France, is the politeness of kings. Royalty arrives on time and leaves on time. So it is with the queen, but not on this occasion... When the time came for her to leave, she stayed and stayed. One of her attendants said he had never known her to linger so long after her scheduled departure time. She was meeting with a group of Holocaust survivors. She gave each survivor, it was a large group, her focused, unhurried attention. She stood with each until they had finished telling their personal story. One after another, the survivors were coming to me in a kind of trance, saying, 60 years ago, I did not know whether I would be alive tomorrow, and here I am today talking to the queen. It brought a kind of blessed closure into deeply lacerated lives. 60 years (laughs) earlier, they had been treated in Germany, Austria, Poland, in fact, most of Europe as subhuman, yet now the queen was treating them as if each were a visiting head of state. That was humility. Not holding yourself low, but holding others high. And where you find humility, there you find greatness. I think an important teaching for our time about power and about um, how one behaves with power.
3: And how to behave as a king.
1: And how to behave as a king. Exactly right.
3: Make it a queen instead. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so may, we, uh, may we take the injunction, said it, set it to your dove seriously. May we figure out how it is that we can pursue justice. That's all we're asked to do, uh, and it's a lot that we're asked to do, but uh, we don't have to achieve it, but we must not cease or desist from pursuing it. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat <laughs> shalom.